Hello again. Have you ever felt like something was hidden from you? All the time. Um, and, and, you know, in, in many things, but specifically in, the, in sometimes our study of the Bible, and whether we're, we're at church or whether we're, we're doing it on our own or in a group study, you ever feel that feeling you're missing something? Like something's just not quite connecting in your head? Um, I call this our mystery moments. And I had this mystery moment uh, two Thursdays ago. I do a class here at 6.30 at night. And um, the ma- I still got some amazing people that join me with it. But I'm studying for this, and it's coming out of John 2, 13 through 22. So I'm going to read that real quick, just to get you familiar. It's a very familiar area of Scripture. Once you hear the story, you'll understand what I'm saying. Um, John 2, 13 through 22, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple, so, and he drove them out the sheep, cattle, and scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor and turned over their tables. Then going out over to the people who sold the doves, he said, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then the, his disciples remembered this prophecy from scripture. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. What, they exclaimed, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you can build it in three days. But when Jesus said this, when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So that was the passage in which we were going to study, and, and I put together you know, information, things about it for the class. And we're going to go over some of that here because I want you to kind of go through what's going on in my head. Good luck with that. Um, but... What happened when I'm with, one of the things that I prayed before going into the, to, to this meeting was, God, you've done such a good job allowing these people to share with me in discovering what's in your word. We study the gospels, we're going through them in chronological order, and it was this passage that's there. And I said, I really believe by the end of this time, you're going to show me what I'm missing, because I was missing something, flat out missing it. And of course, I go into the time. Now, one of the things that I, I focused on in the past, one of the things that we begin with, um, I always have these ground rules, kind of assumptions, rules, things that, the way in which when we go to the study, I use as a base value for where we teach. So God's word is God's word. The old covenant is old. The new covenant is what's in effect. So if there's a contradiction between the old and the new, the new covenant is what's there because a lot of times people will take something in the Old Testament and misinterpret it. Jesus is the king and the reason for any season. This is about time with God, time with others. Christ came to testify to the truth. And this is my favorite. And there's nothing new under the sun. If I stand up here before you and actually proclaim to you some kind of new revelation that's not biblical or, or I'm glorifying something, please kick me out. It's time. It's time to stop listening to me. And anytime anybody comes to you with that, we receive new revelations for us. But for 2,000 years of human history, people have been studying the Bible. I guarantee you, there's no 
new thought about how this stuff was going on. This has, been, this has been studied and studied and studied by now millions and millions of people. Somebody has thought it. Somebody has discovered it. And so I always put that into place because there are teachers out there who, who claim all kinds of crazy things that go through it. The other side is this. God's economy is different than our economy. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. Everything in this world values, everything we value here, power, money, um, desire, all of those things run counter to the things that God desires. Almost completely opposite. Jesus said the first will be last. That doesn't make any sense to us. What do you mean the first will be last? First is first. King is a king. His rulers are the rulers and the peons are the peons. That's how we view this world and always have. God views this world differently than we do. And I always wanted that to be the case. So those are the standards by which we go. And when I looked at this text, I really leaned on to the way we have worshiped since Adam and Eve. I said, this thing called the temple, we don't really know in this world. We don't, we're not Jewish. We don't understand how important that was for the, for the Jews, what it all meant. We kind of read this, we go, okay, yeah, the temple, and there were some bad things going on, Jesus didn't like it. And then we kind of just read through the verse, and I've done that just like anybody's done that. But I really wanted to focus on how we've worshiped as a human race since Adam and Eve. So Adam to Noah took approximately 1,656 years, if you base on the genealogies in um, in the Bible in Genesis. The only real indication we have in Genesis of how people worshiped during for 1600 years was in Genesis 4.35. And 4.35, basically, 4.3 and 5, 3 through 5, excuse me. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. So we have our first kind of indication that there was some form of worship for God going on. There was some form of giving. Where, you know, Abel gave of, of the firstborn of the lambs. Cain gave of his first fruits. So there is a form of giving in worship of God here. Interestingly enough, as we move forward, we pass the story of Cain and Abel and so forth, we get to Seth being born, growing up and actually having a son. And if you go to 426, this says, when Seth grew up, he had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, the people first began to worship the Lord by name. So we have an indication that some form of worship began now at this point. Now, that's interesting. For 1,600 years... But what happened at the end of 1,600 years? Flood. How many people were left? Eight. So how quality was that worship of God done by people for 1,600 years? There wasn't a lot of quality going on, if there was any. So everything that was told, everything that was done was done. There wasn't, and we don't have any written record of what went on. It was all done through word of mouth. The only things we know really is word of mouth or what God just revealed to us in, the first, in a couple chapters in Genesis. But we can certainly know that people did not worship God very well 
for that first 1,600 years. Agreed? Terrible. Okay. Noah to Abraham spanned another 40, 400 years. The first indication of worship after Noah was when Noah actually got off the ark. When they went onto the ark, God actually told them to take a few more animals than, than, what was the, the, than the two by two all the way through. So because of this, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and there he sacrificed his burnt offerings, the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. So we have an indication that now we have sacrificial system being put into place, okay? But during this time, another thing took place. Humans had banded together. All of, all of the language was the same. All of our communication capabilities were the same. And in comes this guy named Nimrod, right? Now, Nimrod, we know, what do we know Nimrod as now? If we say, you Nimrod, what do we say? Dummy, idiot. Actually looked up the, the, the origins of that. And they, they say there might be some ties to this, but actually the, 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 one of the best explanations for it was a Bugs Bunny cartoon actually between Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny. And Bugs Bunny called Elmer Fudd and did a Fudd a Nimrod. Just so you know. Okay, so that's where this kind of started. You know, you never know what the origins of some of this stuff is. But Nimrod actually, according to Genesis, was a great warrior, a hunter. He was seen as great in human eyes. So great that people used him as a ruler, that people used him and he began to develop cities all across Mesopotamia in that area. One of those cities being Babylon, okay? That's what we know from the Bible. There are inferences beyond the Bible that have to go back to, you know, Josephus says some things about Nimrod and so forth, that Nimrod, this is not necessarily from the Bible, but the inference is that Nimrod was the catalyst for what happened at Babel. At Babel, humans started to stop worshiping God and start really worshiping themselves and glorifying themselves, okay? And so they said, hey, it's about us. It's not about God. We're gonna build this tower to show God how great we are because they all could talk together. They could all communicate together. Um, interesting with Nimrod, there's actually some other indications that Nimrod began what became human religion throughout the world. If you see Greek gods, Roman gods, Indian gods, uh, Native American gods, they all have very similar gods. They just change their names, but they all have a sun god, a moon god, a god of, a god of love, um, you know, Hades, some form of these gods that go on. And some believe that that goes all the way back to he was the leader of that kind of worship at Babel. And when God said, hey, I'm done with this and I'm separating you guys, that spread out through the entire world. That's that form of, of, that form of worship, basically. Interesting with worship right here, God did two things to try, as grace towards the human race. Number one, he shortened their lives. Because during the, during the time of Adam and Eve up to, up to Noah, people lived for 900 years. The mercy of God was actually to shorten their lives because over that period of time, think about this. If you had 900 years to screw up, right? I mean, how big a trouble would we be in? Let's face it. And, and history proved it. Eight people were kind of justified at the end of that run, Right? It also proves it here because during the time from Noah to Abraham, Abraham, time spans were shortening, but Abraham still lived till he was 200. So by the time we get to Abraham, there's really only one family that God's justifying in terms of their worship of him, Abraham's family. There are all kinds of nations now going on on the, on the, on the planet Earth, and God singles 
one family out, Abraham, his wife, and, if, if, and to say it's just his family is a little misleading because he would have had, he was a wealthy man, so he would have had a lot of cattle, sheep, things, people to run those, cousins, aunts, uncles, brothers, former roommates. With, they all lived together, okay? They all lived as one big clan. So this is kind of one clan that Abraham now became blessed by God for. And God gave him some kind of indication of, you know, he gave him a covenant and he sealed it. What's, what's the, what was the seal of the covenant with Abraham? What is it? Huh? But what's the, sign, what's the sign of it at the end of it? What does he actually institute? Circumcision. Okay. So not only is there some sacrifice going on, he actually institutes circumcision as a sign of the Jews of this promise and of this covenant that God made with them. So now we have some more form of how people worship going on, yet very few people in the world are actually doing it. Um, from Abraham to Moses spanned another thousand years. Abraham to Moses, his son, Abraham's son was Isaac. Then you had Jacob. Then you had Joseph and the 12 tribes of Israel, basically at that point. What was the quality of those guys as people? Are they written about glowingly or are they written about with all of their faults and all of their issues? All their faults and issues are on front and center. These are not necessarily good dudes. Jacob, what does Jacob actually mean? Jacob is the term that means what? Supplanter, deceiver. He was known as a deceiver. He stole his brother's birthright and he stole his blessing. So he's a thief, really, okay? 12 tribes, the 12 brothers that came from Jacob. Uh, how good were those dudes? You know, hey, let's, uh, we don't like Joseph. Joseph wasn't a great dude either. Joseph was kind of a, a braggart throwing on, you know, this cloak and saying, hey, dad, look how great I am in front of all his brothers, making his brothers mad. But his brothers got so mad that they said, let's kill him. I mean, that's the appropriate thing to do at this point. And instead of killing him, they actually, you know, sold him off into slavery, told his dad that he's died. These are not quality, good, honest, worshiping God dudes, okay? Yet they're blessed. 400 years in Egypt, you know, Joseph got all the, the, the children of Israel into Egypt. 40 years, he was turned into slavery for the, for, 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 for the Israelite people, Right? persecution has a tendency to give you clarity on what you're doing. And persecution for them gave them clarity of a hope that was coming. They were looking for their deliverer, right? And who was the deliverer? Let my people go, okay? Ten Commandments, I love Ten Commandments, one of my favorite movies of all time. Moses comes along and Moses leads them out of Israel and out into the wilderness and to where? Where does he go from the wilderness? Mount Sinai. Now, in this time, God is actively working for the Israelite people. They just saw plagues. They just saw pillars of fire. They just saw the, the, the ocean open up and walked over on dry land and it closed on his, their enemies behind them. God is not subtle at this point. There's no subtleties going on, right? Yet, as they're at Sinai, as they're doing this, what do they do? They build altars to other people. They complained. They murmured amongst themselves. 
How was their worship of God at this point? Okay. I call it chaos to tabernacle. Worship of God had been at best chaotic, at worst forgotten about, and outright rebellion against who God was for basically 1,015, 1,600, for basically 2,000 years of human history. The vast majority of the world had no form of worship of God and any worship they had had nothing to do with worshiping of something true and honest and good. It was almost always worship of self, okay? So Moses comes off Sinai and, and creates what? The tabernacle. Now in, in Leviticus, Exodus Leviticus, we get our first written formal way in which we're to worship God. It's specific. This is a big tent with the, this around it. Every piece, every part of this was actually told to them how to make by God and how they actually transport it from one place to another. God's spirit would come into the, into the, into the Holy of Holies in the tent here. And then when it was time for them to leave wherever they're going, his spirit would release. They would pack everything up and go on to the next place. Okay. And this lasted for how long? 40 years. Yeah, there you go. 40 years. Got a good answer from the back. I like that. Okay, for 40 years. Now, even during this time, what was the worship of the children of Israel like? In fact, it got most of them killed before they actually got to go into the promised land, right? So even now, God gave them the way to worship and they still are sort of are rejecting it. Tabernacle ends up, they end up going into the promised land. Joshua leads them in. And now people scatter throughout the entire land of Israel. Israel's about a, almost 200, 200 miles from the top end of, of where the, the, the Canaan and, and the children of Israel were starting down to, the, down to the southern end in Judea. Worship of God there, they would, always, they would follow it in tabernacle. And that was easy when they were together. But as they separated, they began to find, and God instituted towns where priests would be, places that they could go that were not necessarily at the tabernacle that they could offer sacrifices and do the appropriate things to worship God. So those things were happening. The tabernacle itself was kind of floating around in, in, in odd places. Um, the Ark of the Covenant would get stolen and then it would come back. There's all kinds of things that was happening with this. But for, for the next years up to David, the tabernacle was instituted and brought in and not, and the Ark was with it or not. And David came around. Now at this point, People were all over the place, but they had a way to win which they could worship, instituted through the priests and everything else. David came in and did something interesting. David was very successful, great leader, built a huge palace because of it, an elaborate palace. It was beautiful. And finally it's done and he's sitting up there kind of proud of doing what we would do, right? I'm David, I'm cool, I'm king, this is good. Look at this palace, it's awesome. Then he looked over the balcony and he saw that. And he went, you know what? I got a place like this. God needs a place like this. So David went and got his, got his high priest, which was Nathan, and said, Nathan, I got an idea. Let's build, let's build a temple instead of a tabernacle. And I question you, whose idea was it? It was David's idea. Was God involved in that decision? Not necessarily. Nathan actually went to God and God went, eh, no, I don't need that. But 
over time, God, I don't say relented, but God said, okay, yes, your temple can be built. You can build the temple, but God did not give clear instruction or direction on how to build that temple. That temple was of human origin and human construction, okay? And David wasn't able to build it, why? Too much blood on his hands. That dude had conquered and killed many, many people. So he gave it to Solomon and Solomon built the temple. The temple. And that's what we have here. Now the temple lasted um, all the way through, oh, Nebuchadnezzar basically and the Babylonians was the ones that destroyed it. But the interesting part about the temple, the temple did something it wasn't intended to do. It consolidated power in one place. Priests, high priests, all worship consolidated and formed on this temple. So much so that in, in John 4, what do we see Jesus telling the woman at the well? Well, actually the woman at the well knows it very well. She says what? On this mountain, they, we, we say we should worship, and you Jews say you should worship in Jerusalem. So even by Jesus's time, there's this conflict going on of where people worship. And the, the design of the temple at this point consolidated this so that the temple became the focal point of all worship in Israel. That led to, pretty soon after Solomon, the kingdom split. You had 10 kingdoms up north in, the, in, in what was called Israel. Judah became the southern kingdom. Time went on, and how great were the rulers of Israel from that point forward? They were awful. Not only were they awful, they instituted people who would perform acts in the temple that were awful. Many times when it was, when the new king, when king, when, when everyone, Josiah um, and a couple other kings were trying to bring God back, they would go in, they would bring out the scrolls, dust them off because they haven't been read in many, 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 many years and read through this and try to institute some of the things back into the temple that were there. But again, worship of God was lost. So bad that by the time it got to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, takes over the Southern kingdom of Judah goes, takes exiles. That's where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go off into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar actually leaves Jerusalem alone sort of at this point. He leaves a king in charge, but that king decides he's gonna conspire against Nebuchadnezzar with the Egyptians. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like that. So what does he do? He comes in and he destroys the temple. And that's the people kind of leaving the area and he destroys Jerusalem in general. Jerusalem basically is utterly destroyed. At that point, God's spirit had come into the temple when it was first, first instituted by Solomon. It left before its destruction and now it never came back. So worship of God now was in the hands of the people. They were in exile in Babylon. They formed ways in which they were there. This is actually where the synagogue came around, where, where, where Jewish um, Jews actually instituted some kind of meeting together every week. Instead of meeting at the temple, they now would meet in a synagogue. And actually that's kind of the institution of what we do here, where this comes from. But it's lost at this point. 70 years later, what happens? Exile ends. Ezra actually talking with King Cyrus. Cyrus lets him go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Okay. So Ezra comes in. Now, is it anywhere near the glory of Solomon's temple? No, in fact, it's a really, really bad copy. Um, but the people's heart at this point are right, okay? And they've learned a lesson. Their lesson was, 
don't do idolatry. Don't, don't go after all of the gods and many things that were going on in the nations around them because that's what got them exiled in the first place. Their life was constantly this. We worship God, now we worship Baal. We worship God, now we worship Molech. We worship God. We, I mean, they were constantly doing this joy and there were, there were far many more years they were not worshiping God than when they were. This comes around and kind of solves the idolatry problem, Okay. Because from the time of Ezra all the way through Jesus' time, the children of Israel didn't have an issue with idolatry, worshiping other gods. That was not an issue for them. But they came in and they built, and Herod came and took over and built Herod's temple on top of Ezra's temple. And as with anything, we're human. And we do human things with the worship of God. So by the time we got to Herod's time, the opposite thing was happening. Instead of them worshiping other gods, they became so entrenched in the, in the things that they were worshiping here, it became self-righteousness. It became self-selfishness. It became some worship of, it's all about the act that I do and not about the heart at which I do it, right? Pharisees, Sadducees, you name it, they did it. And with Herod's temple... By the time we get to Jesus, something pretty awful was happening. It became where you had to do pilgrimages to the temple if you were a good Jew throughout the world. The Jews were dispersed throughout the world, first from Babylon, next from the Greek empire. And it became a ready call to say at Passover time, all Jew, Jewish men should come back to the temple, offer their sacrifice appropriately, Worship during the week of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and then go away. Now there's a problem with that. When you came, you had to bring a sacrifice and the sacrifice had to be unblemished. So if you were wealthy, ox, sheep, goats would all kind of work for that. And if you were not wealthy, turtle doves, birds would actually work for this. Now when you're traveling, let's just say from Galilee to Jerusalem, which is about 70 miles, if you're bringing an ox there, what happens with that ox over the 70 miles? He loses weight, tired, could get hurt, injured. So somebody standing on the road out there probably under good intent realized if I carry goats, sheep, oxen during the time of the Passover, someone's gonna pass by and say, hey, can I buy that from you? Because traveling with those kind of, with those kind of sacrifices would have been very difficult anyway. So yeah, you can do that. Also, a temple tax had to be paid and money throughout the entire kingdom was all over the place. You had Roman money and you had Syrian money and you had just gold pieces in general and the temple had to be paid by temple tax by a very specific coin. And so they say, hey, okay, great. You have Roman money. I'll take your Roman money this much and I'll take and you can have the piece to pay your tax. As with anything that starts with good intent, we make profit out of it. And when, you, when profit comes comes power. By the time we get to Jesus's time, the high priest was running this scheme. That became glorified extortion. Because if you actually brought it, you think about this, if you had actually gone through the effort of bringing your sacrifice, all they had to say was, I'm sorry, that, look, at, look at what you did to your, to, to your ox on the way here. He's, he's emaciated, he's hurt. That's not gonna be a worthy sacrifice. You need to buy this sacrifice over here. Did you have any control of price? 
They charged any price they wanted to. Do you have any control over what they exchange your money for? And as we're learning now, when there's high demand, what happens to prices? This is supply and demand. These guys that ran the temple became organized crime in every way. Because they held, and they held on to it with dear life. It was so bad that basically, what were they looking to do to Jesus? Because he was trying to end this. Okay. This is organized crime. So think about this. You're just a Jewish man living, fisherman maybe in Galilee, and you need to go to, you need to go down to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God during the Passover. Up. Hey, thank you. They, <laughs> technically speaking, you go up to Jerusalem, even though it's south, because it's elevated over where everything else is. We pointed that out in our class. Thank you, Dave. Go up to Jerusalem. And you want to be, you, you, you want to do right for God. You want to be right for God. But then you walk into the mess that is this place because all of those transactions that were happening were happening in the courtyards around it. Goats, sheep, ox, birds, money changers. And by the way, Jerusalem went from about 150,000 people to over 1 million people in the span of a week of Passover. This was chaos. So think about it. I wanna worship God. Guys, when I go to Circle K and I have to stand in a line of 10 people, how much do I wanna worship God at that point? A lot. <laughs> I'm frustrated there. Could you imagine going here and standing amongst thousands of people waiting to be extorted for your sacrifice? Just waiting to be extorted to buy the coin for the temple tax. And then waiting just to be able to offer your sacrifice in the midst of all of this. In the smell and the chaos that this was, what was worship really about? And in that, Jesus actually looked at the Pharisees and said this, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law or you Pharisees? Hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, you won't go in yourself and you don't let others enter either. That's in essence what they did. When, they were the, when they're the mob, they I mean, offer you can't refuse, you know? When they're doing that, not only are they damning themselves, but they're damning everybody else that's coming around them. They're stopping people from any form of worship of God, period. So I get all of this. I understood all of this. And I came up with some things that were pretty easy to come up with. Number one, we have always replaced true worship of God with our self-gratifying ways. Is there anything really different from what they did than what we've done since Christ has been around for 2,000 years in the church or in churches or in anything? Is there anything really different? I mean, we can point at the Catholic church and go, yeah, you terrible people over there. We can point at our own churches as well, at Protestant churches and denominationalism and everything that goes in between. And the, 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 all, basically every, everything that what religion does to true worship of God, we can be very guilty of. And I understood that. And that was a really solid point that I thought about that I wanted to make to our class. Jesus was not just angry at what was going on at the time when he walked into the temple. 
4,000 years of human history had tried to worship, had, had had some form of expression for God. And that, that's what it had become. So when he walked into the temple, it wasn't just, oh my gosh, you guys are just money changers. He was looking at 4,000 years of human history of worship of God and seeing the deficiencies that humankind had done. Another point, many use this as justification in their own self-righteous anger. Right? A lot of people use this passage to say, hey, I need to be angry. And I saw this. I'm saying, that's pretty, that's pretty good there. And for us, I, this was a quote that I wanted to read, and I, I got this. Modern Bible readers are fairly used to seeing the Pharisees as the villains of the gospel, but we need to be wary. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves guilty of many of the same sins. We're just as prone to focus on externals, trivialize faith, neglect things that Jesus cares about, and persecute the faithful. We do this as easily as anybody else. Truths, truths. I got those things when I, when I was going into the class and said, that's good. But I still was missing something. And we got all the way through the class and I, of course, went, you know, I'm, I'm heavily into it and I'm doing basically what I do here, but even more a little nuts. Um, and I hit 8.05 and I realized, ah, I'm at 8.05, I've got another I could go another 20 minutes. I can't, I gotta, I gotta wrap this up. So I pretty much do the short, short, short version uh, and, and you know, wrap up in three minutes and then go to pray. That's when God took over. The mystery that I had been looking at became revealed. What did I miss in this story? What thing was there? Well, interestingly enough, it's kind of in, this was the funny part, was it was in everything that I said I'd lead my class with. Hey, it's God's economy, not ours. Because what would we do in that situation? If, if we were in charge of religion and religion had gone that way, we would try and destroy the temple or leave it all together and create something new, get angry and upset and all of the other things. But what I didn't do was look at this thing through the lens of grace and truth. Because Jesus walked in there and got angry about it. But if you ever think you have righteous anger, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. I miss that. And I think we miss it all too often when we read the Bible for some form of good deeds, what my behavior should be. But grace and truth is the most important thing that's put in there. And in this story, if you think you can be Jesus, then I dare you to do what he went and did to save it. He went out, was mocked, beaten, tortured, nailed to a cross with no cause, no, did nothing wrong, never did anything wrong. And the moment you think that your anger's righteous enough, I dare you to do that, because you won't.
I forgot about this. We forget about this. We live in man-made human religion all the time. And if we don't do it necessarily in here, although we do, we certainly do it in our own lives. We compare ourselves to people. We judge other people. We see them for being something that, that, that I'm not, oh, look, I'm so much better. Than, you know, I'm glad I'm not like those people over there. And we do it. And we read a story where Jesus gets angry and we use it as justification for some kind of righteous anger at what's going on in this world. Guys, there's crazy things going on in this world today. It's nuts. But do you get angry and upset? Or did Jesus call you to love and forgive? Let's pray. Father, I thank you and love you. You're awesome in every way. Your economy, the things you value are nothing like what we value. Pretty much we know if we think it, we probably need to assume the opposite is what you want. Because instead of us burdening ourselves, trying to find sacrifices in the chaos of a temple, in mercy and grace, you gave your son so that our sins can be washed as white as snow. He was angry. And then he went and did the least angry thing I could think of for us. We love you. Let that just work in our hearts and work in our minds as we seek you day to day, week to week, and for the rest of our lives. In your son's name, amen. Amen.